Morning, Family Church. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 7 this morning? John chapter 7. As we're opening, I want to give a little bit of background of where we've been and where we're going. So far in John 7, we've seen that Jesus has rejected the advice of His unbelieving brothers. And they're at right now the the time of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating God's goodness, God's faithfulness to Israel during the 40 years in the desert. And so they're living in these booths. This is a a week-long celebration. Jesus has rejected this advice. His brothers have gone up to the feast, and Jesus spent some time waiting until the proper time. So we pick up in verse 14 this morning. Before we get to verse 14, would you pray with me for the reading of God's Word? God, we thank you. We're able to come and worship you this morning. God, I thank you for your word. God, I pray that uh, you may, through the Holy Spirit, illuminate and open our hearts and minds to your message this morning. God, hold nothing back from us, we would ask. God, I thank you for, for as I've been studying uh, the word this week for this sermon, uh, what you've done in my heart and life, and uh, just the gratitude that it's produced. I, I pray the same for each and every single one of us who hear this sermon as well. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pick up our story in verse 14. It says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This phrase, middle of the feast, doesn't exactly tell us the exact time when Jesus went up, but we know it wasn't the beginning of the feast, which is what his brothers wanted him to do. And the feast is still going on, so it's sometime in the middle of the feast, and it's believed that if Jesus would have went up at the beginning of the feast, that the crowd might have forced upon him a premature triumphal entry that we see later in the scriptures, where he comes in riding as the Messiah on the donkey with the colt and the palm branches, because it was during this time those palm branches were supposed to be laid on the Feast of Booths, so that's why there was an abundance of palm branches at this time. So Jesus did not do that. It also was suspected that the temple guards and the Romans and the Jewish leaders might have been there to arrest Jesus had he tried to do that. Or the crowd took him to make him king. They might have been ready for him to do that. And so Jesus, because his time was not yet waited until the middle of the feast, he snuck in without causing a big uproar for his entry into the city. And we see in verse 14, he immediately, as soon as he got there, went into the temple and began teaching. D.A. Carson says this, It might be asked why, if Jesus was trying to maintain secrecy, he would choose to go into the temple. Certainly the setting was right for teaching. Other rabbis taught their followers there. But drawing vast crowds as it did, the temple was not a site that fostered privacy. We must recall, however, that the focus of Jesus' concern was not privacy, but obedience to his Father. We move to verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? William Barclay, the Bible commentator, says, The criticism was that Jesus was uneducated. It's the exact same accusation made against Peter and John when they stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. Jesus had been to no rabbinic school. It was the practice that only a disciple of an accredited teacher was entitled to expound Scripture and to talk about the law. You see, in this culture, no rabbi ever stood before a crowd and made a teaching on his own. 
he always said something like, there is a teaching that says, and then he would go on to expound on that teaching. But it was always cited with former references. It would be like a lawyer standing before a judge, and he would say, case law says, and he's always building his case on former cases. Nothing ever just arises from nowhere. So then they would go on to cite these quotations and authorities for every statement they made. But here was Jesus, a carpenter from no rabbinic school without any credibility, who was young, expounding, and they would think arrogantly teaching them about the Scriptures that they had been to school for. As you read through the Gospels, we see a different picture of Jesus. We see a Jesus who comes, and He doesn't say, men before me have said. We see a Jesus who comes and says, no, truly, truly, you have heard it said before, but I come and I tell you the truth. See, Jesus, this is why we we see in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, that at the end it says they were just in awe of His teaching because He didn't teach as the scribes or Pharisees. He came and taught as somebody with boldness and authority. It's because Jesus said things like, but I say to you, And he would make these bold declarations or, I tell you the truth. And he was almost speaking as if he was God. And we know, of course, he was God. Or speaking on behalf of God himself. So the Jews marveled because he was able to understand their teaching, but also teach in such a way. His teaching was captivating. It wasn't boring or dull or anything like that. He came with a boldness and a freshness. Not to mention everything he taught was right and biblical. And so these were new, fresh things. He wasn't repeating the same old. So they came asking questions and they marveled, which also meant they kind of balked at questions like, well, where did you graduate from? Who did you study under? Where does your teaching come from? Those are the type of questions. This is what they were getting at. A common answer that they might have been expecting was that Jesus would just list out his credentials. He would say, I studied at such and such place under these teachers. But Jesus didn't do that. Or they they could have been expecting an answer of, no one taught me this. I am a self-made man. This is what I came up with on my own. And he could have taken that route, which in our culture today is kind of praised, right? Taking something and making it your own. But Jesus didn't do either of those things because we know from Scriptures that neither of those responses would have been true. Jesus says in verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but Him who sent me. So it's not somebody else's, and I didn't come up with it on my own. Jesus said, God the Father is the one who has given me this teaching. Which leads to point number one. Jesus' teaching is God's teaching. Jesus' teaching is God's teaching. Jesus references God as His source of divine truth in everything that He said. John 12, we're not there yet, but we'll get there one day. John 12, 49 says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Think on that thought. Jesus said every word he had ever spoken was given to him by God, and he said those words. Everything that Jesus did was in obedience to God the Father. As we move to verse 17, we see that Jesus anticipates what the crowd was going to do, their objections. And it's as if Jesus preemptively says, in verse 17, He draws a line in the sand. 
Because He's speaking to this crowd. I want you to imagine you're the crowd this morning and Jesus is speaking to you and He draws a line in the sand preemptively and He says, those of you who accept My teaching are of God. Those of you who are not, are not. And He draws this line in the sand. He says, how you respond to Me is going to prove, is going to show where your heart is. Look with me in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. This is the most difficult verse we have this morning. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on it. Another translation puts it this way for us to think about. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. So Jesus drew a line in the sand, and in essence he was saying to the crowd, how you respond is going to reveal your heart towards God. How you respond to my message. Last week in Terry's sermon, he mentioned a quote from John Calvin on the fear of man. And I was thinking through, a lot of times we mention quotes from men, and I'm thinking a lot of times maybe you don't know who these men are. And so I was thinking maybe I would just take a few moments and share with you a little bit about who John Calvin is, because I have a quote from him this morning as well. John Calvin was and is one of the most influential Bible teachers in history. He had a powerful influence on Christian leaders throughout history, including a couple of the following. John Knox, who's considered one of the most powerful preachers in his day, who transformed Scotland with the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Bunyan, pastor and theologian. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe some of you didn't know that Pilgrim's Progress, the number one selling book in the world, right behind the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Spurgeon, considered the prince of preachers. William Carey, who's the father of the modern day missionary movement because of much of what William Carey wrote and did, spurring on missions to the world. He was directly influenced by the teachings and readings of John Calvin. George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists outside of the disciples, and Paul. Jonathan Edwards, widely acknowledged to be America's most important theologian and one of America's greatest intellects. All of these men have lines tied to John Calvin. Well, Calvin said the following regarding verse 17, which also ties into last week's sermon on the fear of man. He said this, Correct judgment to Christ's statement stems from the fear and reverence of God. If their minds are inclined to fear God, they will quickly see whether his preaching is true or not. So what Jesus is teaching to this crowd is there would be those who would have the desire to do God's will, who would acknowledge that Jesus is speaking on behalf of God himself. I think we can all agree with that, which we think seems easy enough, but here's the situation we need to think about. We have to remember the audience that Jesus was speaking to that day. He's in the most religious city on the planet, Jerusalem. During one of the most religious times of the year, this this festival, this feast. On top of all that, he's in the middle of the temple, which was reserved for those who wanted to study God's word or hear the preaching of God's word. So, most religious city at the most religious time in the most religious place, the temple, hearing the teachings and teaching, church, you can't get much more of a spiritual crowd than that. 
So he's speaking to people who I think we could all assume had a desire, they would have said, to do God's will. And in essence, Jesus was saying, imagine we're in that temple, and we're the religious people, and we're all saying, I want to do God's will. I'm here for God. Jesus is saying, if you're here for that, and you want to do God's will, you will know that my teaching is not from me, but from God. I think it's safe to assume that the entire audience would have said, yeah, I want to do God's will. I don't think anyone in Jerusalem at this time in the temple listening to teaching would have said, I don't care about God. So that's an assumption that, that this sermon makes. They all would have said, of course, we have a desire to serve God. That's why we're rabbis. That's why we're in Jerusalem. That's why we've traveled here. That's why we're following the commandments. That's why we're sitting under teaching. Isn't Jesus preaching to the choir with what he's saying? Well, if you look a couple of verses later in John chapter 7, there's an alarming verse. Look at verse 30. John chapter 7, verse 30. Remember Jesus drew that line in the sand and he said, your actions, if you have a desire to do God's will, it's going to prove who you are. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But then we also see in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. So what happened here, church? It seemed from the outset, from the outside looking in to those in the temple, they all would have said, tell us about God. We want to hear from God. They all would have had a desire to do God's will. Their starting point, imagine this pulpit is their starting point. Everyone looked the same. They all started in the same place, a desire to do God's will will. Yet two groups ended up. You have one group who wants to praise Jesus and follow Jesus, and another group who wants to arrest Jesus, even though they all had the same starting point. They agreed on the same set of principles, the same circumstances, the same desires. How can there be such vast difference between the two groups? I want us to look back at verse 17. John chapter 7, verse 17, because Jesus tips us off Verse 17, if we listen carefully, Jesus tells us why this happens. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. Key word there, know. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God. Jesus said some in the crowd would know while others did not know. Everyone heard the same message. They heard the same words coming from the mouth of Jesus. Yet some in the crowd knew something someone else in the crowd didn't. And that's a key question for us to answer this morning. Jesus isn't saying some of you would just believe my teaching is from God. And he's not saying, well, some of you would merely think my teaching is from God. Jesus clearly says some of you will know my teaching is from God. How can someone in the crowd know his teaching is from God while others don't? What do we do when we come to difficulties in the Bible? We need to remember context is key. Context, context, context. We need to look at the context. Because in John chapter 7, 
there's verses around John chapter 7. We need to look at the surrounding verses because Jesus did not contradict himself. He systematically has worked through, and we can systematically look at the teachings of Christ, actually the teachings throughout the whole Bible, and there is not one contradiction. Scripture teaches that Scripture cannot be broken. And so these verses all work in perfect alignment. Church, this is why we often reference back to passages we've already seen. It's not because we want to take a long time and we just love taking a long time working through verses. It's because they build upon one another. Pastor and author Kent Hughes says, in order to understand the Scripture properly, we need to consider the actual words of Scripture. We have to know what the words mean in order to preach them. We also need to know the context. It has often been said, every text without a pretext, as in the text before, every text without a pretext, or every, sorry, every text without a context is a pretext. And that is true. We have to know the total context of the passage. It's also helpful to understand the historical and cultural settings, which give us a broader picture. Finally, we need to understand why the writer wrote what he wrote, his purpose. Only when we've gathered all these things can we clearly see what Scripture has to say. This is why last week we recommended a good study Bible as a Christmas present. So we don't need to be skimming the surface. We need to be diving in to the Scriptures. And so for John 7, how do we, how do we figure out what Jesus meant in John 7 that some would know something someone didn't? Well, right before John 7 and Jesus spoke John 7, Jesus spoke John 6, Right? And so we look back in John 6, because Jesus actually told us in John 6, this was going to happen in John 7. He had just told the crowd why this would happen in John 6, why the outcome would produce one crowd wanting to arrest him and one crowd wanting to praise him. So let's turn to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 44. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 44, says, No one can come to me... This is Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Key verse here is 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus spoke, verse 45, referencing a lot of Old Testament passages. I want us to look at some of these passages this morning. They'll be on the screen. But I want us to look at who's doing the work in these passages, how the work is being done, and what work is being done. The first one is Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Isaiah 14, 24 in the King James Version says this, The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. Scripture teaches, so God thinks, happens. Then it goes on, As I have purposed, so shall it stand. As God purposes, so it shall happen. Do we see how the Scriptures speak of God? He's absolutely perfect. He will accomplish all He sets out to do. Nothing will hold back the arm of the Lord. The NLT puts that verse this way, It will all happen as I have planned. 
It will be as I have decided. A cross-reference for John 6.45 in the New Testament is Hebrews 8.10, which is also taken from the Old Testament, but quoted in Hebrews. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And then because of that, listen what God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Do you see the foundation being built? And how what Jesus is teaching in John 6 and John 7 directly coincide with what God the Father has taught all throughout the Old Testament. Because in John 6.45, God is saying, listen, I'm going to teach my people. That's what he said in the Old Testament. I will teach my people. And we see here it says, he put his law into their minds and he wrote something on their hearts which correspond with John 6, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. I hope you see the connection. He says, I will teach my people. Jesus is saying, God says, they will be taught by God. Then we see, after that, after the people had been taught by Him, what would happen? They would become His people, which correspond to John 6, 46. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So God promised to teach His people, He taught his people. And then Jesus said, those whom he taught who have learned from God will what? Come. And that's exactly, that's why he says in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, those who have been taught will come. I will be their God. They will be my people. And in John 6, 46, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to the Son. So, our verses this morning. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd of people. Everyone had that same starting point. Everyone would have said, I'm here for God. I have a desire to do God's will. They all would have wanted to be obedient to God. But Jesus says, some of you will know my teaching is from God, while others do not. He's referencing a group of people that would know something, while others would not. I want to ask you, church, how do you know something? How do you know something? You only know something if it's, you've been taught it or you've learned it from some other means. You know from teaching, receiving teaching, or you know from some other means. That's the only way to really learn something. So how did these people know something when others did not? The only options are they have received this knowledge or this teaching from somewhere which is exactly what Jesus taught in John 6 and the Old Testament, that God would teach his people. And after his people had learned from God, what happened? They came to him. So Jesus speaking to this crowd, he says, some of you will know, and we see in verse 30, those who knew came to Christ and believed. This leads us to point number two. How does this apply in our life this morning? If we know Jesus... We have been taught by God. What an incredible thought, church. I want you to think about that this morning. If you know Christ as Lord, it is because God has taught you. God has taught us. I mean, that that brought overwhelming joy as I just sat and thought about that in my office, that God God would teach me. That's how I know Christ. God has taught. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the Old Testament taught. That's what Jesus is teaching again. Some of you will know, even though he's saying the same message, 
All of us. Listen, when I, when I first came to Christ, there were thousands of students who heard the message, but only some came. It's the same thing with us today. The entire audience of Jesus heard the same words, but some knew something that others did not. This is why always throughout the Scriptures, we see two groups of people in the Scriptures. We see those seeking to persecute Christians and his followers, and those seeking to praise. Seeking to persecute, seeking to praise. This is why Jesus continually, and I just want to build this case a little bit, this is why Jesus continually makes a statement. He who has ears, what? All of us have ears, right church? To hear. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Turn back with me to John 5, verses 24 and 25. John 5, 24 and 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And here's the kicker. Those who hear will live. Not everybody heard, right? But those who did hear lived. Jesus is not teaching if you have physical ears, you need to listen. He's always saying those who have ears to hear. It wasn't that some of you were deaf and some of you could hear and those who could hear needed to listen to him. No, he was saying those who have ears to hear, hear. This is the same for you and I today. Learning theology, learning about God, is not something that, that we just conjure up within ourselves. And the more we understand that, the more it's going to grow our worship for the Lord. It's something given by God, which leads to point number three this morning. Biblical knowledge, our biblical knowledge, our knowledge of God is gained only when it is given through and by the Holy Spirit. First, I want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that, church, we can be lazy and that we can just sit and do nothing and expect God to fill our hearts and minds with wisdom. No, we are called, we are commanded to search out wisdom, to search out God's Word, to study it. We're called and commanded to seek out His truths, to pursue others to find His truths. We're commanded and called to sit under godly teaching. We've been given the Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation. But as we read God's Word and as we sit under godly teaching, the Holy Spirit is not something that you and I take control of and we make it do what we want to do. John, back in John 3, Jesus taught Nicodemus the Holy Spirit goes where it wants to go and it does what it wants to do. The same is true in the Holy Spirit in our life. And there are many in the world today, and I would caution you, there are many in the world today who would claim that the Holy Spirit is more something like you can control, like you can wield it like a sword, that you just need to claim in the power of the Holy Spirit that this would happen. It's almost like you are telling the Trinitarian God of the Spirit what to do. That's not, that's not what Jesus teaches or the Bible teaches. The Holy Spirit is not something we command and dictate where to go and what to do. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they exist for whose glory? Their own. 
not our glory. We exist for their glory. So we don't claim that you just say, in Jesus' name, you can tell the Spirit what to do. That's a man-centered theology. We want to be God-centered. So we say, God, your will be done. I submit to everything you want done in your life. We don't summon up the Spirit. So I want to say it again. Biblical knowledge is gained only when it is given through and by the Holy Spirit. I think all of us have actually experienced this before, and I just want to give an illustration to, to share about this. I, imagine waking up early in the morning, you just couldn't sleep. So you just say, I'm going to spend some time with the Lord this morning. So you wake up, you make your coffee, right? You make it perfect, just right. It's in that cup that's going to keep it hot throughout your whole Bible study. So you grab your Bible, maybe you grab a notepad, you go out on your back lanai, maybe you grab a blanket, because it's a little chilly, you know, these Marco mornings, 70s, 70 degrees. So you grab, the Marco people are grabbing a blanket. It gets to like 70. My wife and I grab a blanket. We're on the back porch. We're like, yes, we get to do some Bible study in the cold. So you're reading through a passage that you've read through 100 times, and then what happens? You know where I'm going with it, right? You read through this passage, you've read so many times, and then you see something different. What just occurred? A miracle. That's how we need to see this. A miracle just occurred. Why didn't you see it the first time? Why didn't you see it the second time or the third time or the fourth time? You didn't have eyes to see. But in that moment, God, through the Holy Spirit, had given you a gift to be able to see something different in your life. If you, if you see a sin you struggle with, that you hadn't seen before. Or God put someone in your life to share with you something they saw in your life that you had never seen before. Listen, we don't naturally in our sinful flesh see sin because that's normal to us. So when we do see something we struggle with or an area in our heart that's convicted, it's because the Holy Spirit and God's goodness has seen to give us that, to show us an area where we need to grow or we get a new attribute of God. Maybe we understand something different about God's love for us, God's caringness for us, God's strength in the midst of a situation that we just haven't experienced before. It's because the gift of the Holy Spirit has illuminated our hearts and minds. It is a gift. Church, I want us to realize that's not something we just conjured up. It's not because we had a better night's sleep that morning or that we made our coffee better or anything weird or this is a new study Bible you know, or this one word. No, it's God illuminated. God did something. I want us to see God promised to teach his people in Hebrews 8. It says, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So the Lord teaches us as we study him. But inside does not suddenly appear, but it's God's doing. I love working with the students on Sunday nights. We meet here at the church Sunday nights at 6.30, and I love hearing from students where they, they say, I've never seen that before. Or I didn't know I struggled with that. Or last week, the fear of man. I really struggle with the fear of man. I never, I never realized how much it really plays into my actions. What happened? It's not that Terry did a really great job. No, it's we preach, we're called to preach. This is, this is one of the means. You did a great job, by the way, Terry. But this is just one of the means how God does it. God's commanded us to sit under godly preaching. 
read God's word, spend time in prayer. These are avenues that God uses. He's commanded. These are the avenues he's going to use. And so students are learning things about themselves, learning things about sin, learning things about growing in the Lord. And when we understand it's all by the goodness and the love of the Lord, it changes our perspective on all these things. John 3.27 says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. On our recent sabbatical trip, my wife and I went to a local gym mining place. And me being as competitive as I am, you can buy a bucket, which by bucket, you know, I'm thinking five gallon the bucket, the buckets are like this big. You know, you can buy a bucket and it was like $10 a bucket or $5 a bucket. And I'm like, I don't want to spend $5 a bucket. I'd rather do the whole day. Like, what can I pay the whole day, so you pay for this whole day, and you can do as many buckets as you want. So now I have a quota. Like, I got to get at least 15 buckets to get my money's worth. And so what you do is you get these buckets, you get your shovel, you travel up to the mountain, you dig in a just, I'm thinking like a gem mine you go into. No, it's just you're digging in the side of the mountain. So you're digging in the side of the mountain, filling up your buckets, you haul them back down, You're sitting down at the water trough. You're there. You're shaking things out. And we were looking for sapphires and rubies. That's the type of gym mining place we were at. And I'm sifting through this. Amanda's there and some of her family were sifting through these things. And and you just get down to, you push through all the dirt. There's rocks. There's leaves. There's sticks. You, You can, you know what leaves and sticks look like, right? So you're pulling those out and you're trying to find a sapphire. And I'm looking, and I, there's nothing in that one, so I throw it out. I do that multiple times, and pretty soon I'm like, what, what are, we, are we, is this just, they're making us pay for dirt? There's nothing in this dirt, you know? You start getting frustrated, and we have this tray, and I'm, pretty soon I'm tired of throwing out nothing. So I'm sitting there, I've spent 10 minutes looking at different angles, running my fingers through this tray, and then I call the guide over. And the guide comes, and he stands behind me, and he looks, and he runs his fingers through real fast, and he points down, and what's he find? A sapphire right in front of me that I've been looking at the whole time. I just didn't know it was a sapphire. What happened? I didn't find it. I dug it. I carried it. I poured it in the sifter. I sifted all through it, and I'm looking at the remains, but I don't see anything. This is exactly how it is with God's Word. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. We're, we're doing the digging. I've hauled it out. I'm sitting. I've made time to do this. I'm reading through God's Word. But if the Holy Spirit does not point out, illuminate, reveal into our minds and our hearts, we're not going to see it. Just like I'm sitting there and I didn't see the sapphires right in front of me. This is how Bible study is. This is how the Word of God works in our life. John Bunyan says this, The whole Bible has been to me as dry as a stick. Or rather, my heart has been so dead and dry to it that I could not conceive the least dram of refreshment. David says the same thing in Psalms 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. David says, open my eyes. His eyes weren't already opened, otherwise he wouldn't have prayed for it. He said, open my eyes. And he's a believer at this time. And then he says, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Maybe for some of you this morning, this just happened. 
You never really thought about the miracle that every time you learn something from God, that it's the Holy Spirit teaching you. So you just got an aha moment this morning. That's the Holy Spirit. That's a miracle of God. No biblical perspectives or insights just randomly occur within us. It's been given by God. What an incredible, incredible gift. Something that we don't deserve. Parents with children. The same thing works as we're raising our children. We want to raise our children in the Lord. So when our child gets out of line, we want to implement biblical loving discipline, right? We need to understand that the discipline is not what changes our child's heart. It's the Holy Spirit that works through that. Just as studying God's Word in and of itself is not what does the work, it's the Holy Spirit. So the same is true when we understand that God has to work through the means and the methods He's commanded us. We carry out discipline differently. Not as if I have the rod and I'm making my child change. No, we have to understand the Holy Spirit has to do the work. The same in your marriage. Husbands, you're not going to change your wife by what you do or don't do. Scripture says you need to do certain things and God changes their heart. The same evangelism, the same is true in so many areas of our life. So maybe you're wondering this morning, what do I do with this information? As we're closing out the service, as we spend some more time in worship, as I leave these doors this morning, how is this going to be everlasting in my life? What do I need to do? I want you to know, church, my sermon this morning is not to lead us to do anything. It's not to lead us to do more. It's for us to acknowledge what Christ has already done and to acknowledge what he continues to do. Because if you and I understand that every time God has taught us, it's a gift from him, and that I'm in a believer because I have been taught by God, and every time I see a new aspect of God's goodness or his attributes, or I see something I struggle with, it's because not just I stumbled upon it, but because the Holy Spirit loves me enough and cares for me enough to show me these things. When I understand that, it's radically changed my desire for the Lord. It's radically changed how I worship. Because all of a sudden, now it's not, I'm entitled to this because I've done the work. No, it's, I can do all the work I can, but if unless the Holy Spirit does, I'm just digging away, and I'm doing lots of carrying and lots of loading, but I'm never finding the gems. And so church, understand when we find the gems and we find the nuggets, it's by the goodness, the love of God. So that should radically change our heart and our dispensation to the Lord. Would you pray this morning with me? And I just want us to end in a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for teaching us and for continuing to teach us. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we are in awe of who you are. God, that you have promised to teach his people. You've promised to teach your people that you would be our God and we would be your people. God, we thank you that you never break your promises. You fulfill those. That's why we can grow and learn is because you've promised to do it in us. God, help us to realize that every time we learn new insight about ourselves, that we just don't take it for granted that it happened, but that we even stop and take a moment and praise God that it has occurred 
Because it's not natural to see that the way I just spoke to my wife was unloving. That's not natural. That's a spiritual dimension. And if, if I just said something, and I can realize that was not a biblical loving thing to do, that's because the Holy Spirit has shown me. Or for using other people to show me. Or when I'm reading your word and I see a new insight about who you are. God, we don't understand naturally in our own flesh who you are. That's only through the Spirit. So Holy Spirit, do a work and continue to do a work. God, give us praise for you. God, when you do these things, help us to understand the gift we have been given. This is why in all things we can give you praise and honor this morning. We praise you so much for who you are and what you've done in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.